When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there and welcome to Thank the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. I'm your host, Adam Russell. Hi there. Additionally, I am your host, Ryan Key. And still, for the one millionth week in a row, I'm your other host, Nick Gambarian. Hey. So many weeks. <laughs> so many weeks. We're also joined by a special guest, a longtime friend, and one of four in the original No Spoiler Pact that inspired this podcast. Samir Bhattacharya from Flyleaf, old friend. What's up, buddy? Hello, how are you doing? I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're for like being a founding here. father. <laughs> founding father. I should be on Mount Rushmore. We love those founding fathers. <laughs> Thank you for turning me into a podcaster, and also nice to meet you. Yeah, great meeting you. I, I'm happy to be here. So Samir and I met in, I want to say, 2010. Story of the Year opened for Flyleaf. That's correct. We did like a nationwide tour, like a full-on tour, right? It was, it was a full tour. It was, it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, good time. We never did a whole tour, but we had the same manager. Same, like, not same firm, like the same place, that company. We had the same day-to-day manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For so, a couple of years. So we never played together, but there was lots of like... L.A. Rainbow Room hangs. Yeah. That kind of shit. (laughs) Hey, bro, yeah, yeah, it's cool. Dudes are so Hollywood. We we were, we were. That's funny. Samir, you're you're from Texas originally, right? Born and raised in in Texas. uh, I was born and raised in Holland, Texas, which... I think it's a population of like 1,187 or something like that. I thought you were going to stop at 11. <laughs> <laughs> 1,100. 11 people. 11? <laughs> so what is your earliest Star Wars memory in your town of 11? Yeah, so my earliest Star Wars memory is is uh, being at my cousin's house in, in Pasadena, Texas, actually. They, they, they had this huge like, Mitsubishi like big screen TV. And, Old school projection style? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I remember like watching A New Hope. Or maybe actually, maybe it was Empire Strikes Back. I can't remember. You know, uh, obviously, you know, Star Wars had been out for a long time because I just turned thirty six years old. So obviously, I wasn't alive when they when they were released. But I, I remember like watching it and like, loving it. It really transported me to to another world. Where I felt like, oh wow, like like just battle of good and evil in space. This is the best. Ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I must have been like four or five years old. That's dope. So was it on, I mean, I guess VHS at that point, right? It was VHS. Yeah, yeah. it was VHS. Remember those TVs, though? Look, it's flat. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't actually a flat screen TV. It was still a big curved tube inside yeah. of it, just shooting the picture onto a flat thing in front exactly. of it. Exactly. You're exactly <laughs> right. They were so giant, dude. They were gigantic. Like, not, not when you think like, hey, look, I just got a Black Friday 85-inch TV. Like, yeah, that's gigantic. This thing was like 
a hearth. Like the whole console. Four feet deep. Yeah, like two refrigerators <laughs> side by side. Good <laughs> luck with like an L-shaped couch. Oh, I know how they got that thing home. Exactly. Good luck. <laughs> I remember there was like a like a sports complex where I played indoor soccer and there was a bar lounge upstairs where my dad was always hammered <laughs> after every soccer game. Kick a ball, son. On like a 12 pack of bush. But they had <laughs> they had one of those big screen ones that was like an early, early one that had the RGB lamps like if you look in the front of it you could see the three red green and blue projector bulbs you know what yeah. i mean and it was like yeah. mirrored so it was front projection i think that's what i'm talking about not that there was a, I, I think i'm wrong obviously saying there was a tv inside a tv like inside but, the box essentially you're thinking right yeah it was something yeah. so there's, shooting there's two television ones. onto the the like p- white plastic film <laughs> yeah. in the front dude it was the sheer mass of the things though that was funny i there was a, a kid in my neighborhood and I don't remember what they were. What, what's some, I might be getting into hot water here with religion and I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to sound insensitive or discriminatory or like a dick or just unknowledgeable. I don't, but I'm asking if you were a member of a church that say on holidays, like Halloween and you turned all the lights off, like, so no one would come to your house. Isn't that a thing? Mm-hmm. I think seventh day Adventists don't celebrate Halloween. And I don't, I don't think Jehovah's witnesses celebrate Halloween. Yeah. Okay. I think that was it. I think Jehovah's witness there, there was a, even in my family, like, you know, I remember growing up, my parents were always like, we don't celebrate Halloween. Well, but when it, when it rolled around, I was wearing a Superman, like yeah, you know, pajamas yeah. walking around right. candy. Yeah. I was the dread pirate Roberts, like four years in a row when I was a kid. <laughs> but like, I'm not saying this because being Jehovah's Witness has anything to do with this story. It's only that that's my childhood memory of the house of the family that had not only the white plastic room-sized projection television thing that we're talking about, but they also had one of those like full-on Independence Day, the film size. Yeah satellite antennas in their yard (laughs) for satellite tv so (laughs) so samir you're 36 i'm we're we're 40 so we're like just a little bit ahead of you but this is like we moved into this neighborhood in in jacksonville florida where i grew up in 1986 and i lived there until 1993 so in between the mid 80s and early 90s is whenever this happened and and this kid was like not really even a good friend of mine but it was like all the kids in the neighborhood knew Mom, dad, I'm sorry, I'm about to, you might've never known this, but one of the things you could get over the giant NASA satellite in your backyard back then was early access to cable TV, like before there was really like cable TV. Well, that included some version of, and I don't even know if it was called this, but some version of like the Playboy channel. Yeah, There was an adult television programming channel that came down that satellite and into this kid's living room on that life-size television. Yeah, so like, you know, it was like sneaking into this dude's house to (laughs) see boobies for your first time that happened in my childhood neighborhood and you, it was, you tried to touch the boobs on the, the screen first didn't you boobies i saw on tv were gigantic they might not have even been gigantic boobies although it was 1980 whatever so they probably were dude you could drop whole, in on a skateboard on those satellites it, it was like <laughs> baywatch and miami vice time so they probably yeah. were actually really big boobies <laughs> but even if they weren't the tv was so big that was my first boobies experience Oh, coming of age. And, and I'm really glad that we, we we hashed that out on this week's podcast. <laughs> now we all know. We all know. Oh, thank you I, for sharing. You're yeah, welcome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Jehovah's that, Witnesses, satellite dishes, and giant projection TVs equal 
my first boobies. Well, <laughs> I would have been cool to watch Star Wars on the giant TV. I don't think that ever happened. Well, yeah. Actually, the first film I ever saw on that giant TV screen was The Exorcist. <laughs> Ooh, wow. Gnarly. I don't feel so bad about the boobies anymore. <laughs> that was an experience. That's a traumatizing childhood experience. I've, I've carried that with me into adulthood. <laughs> yeah, dude. That's rough. Well, moving on from first boobs to the first Star Wars live action series ever. <laughs> The launch title. Segway crown <laughs> carries on. Two weeks in a row. Carries it's on. It's shiny, dude. I'm going to get an assistant <laughs> to buff it for me before I put it on. <laughs> like I said, the launch title for Disney Plus, Disney streaming service, the one that hooked us all. I mean, I would have subscribed regardless just for the library, but The Mandalorian has been the flagship series that has really allowed Disney Plus to flourish, it seems. And we're coming up on season two in just a couple months, so... To prepare for that, we're doing The Mandalorian Season 1, two chapters at a time. This week, The Mandalorian and The Child, Chapter 1 and Chapter 2. Finally. About damn time. Yeah, we've been talking about getting started on Mandalorian for a long time, like knowing that we wanted to wait for Season 2 to do it, but we're here. Finally got the date. Yeah, we got that date this week, so we were just like, oh my god, we could do it now. We're here. So, this is, I mean, it just shows you we're making progress. The, the best year on record is moving along. <laughs> <laughs> Disney Plus describes the series as the following. After the fall of the Galactic Empire, lawlessness has spread throughout the galaxy. A lone gunfighter makes his way through the outer reaches, earning his keep as a bounty hunter. Dark shit, but as we quickly learn, it's the contrast, the juxtaposition of this dark career path and this little ray of light that we meet later. And maybe to be noted before we, we really dive in here, Remember, we've brought this up when we did The Empire Strikes Back. If you haven't listened to that episode and you're listening now because you're interested in The Mandalorian, go back and check that out because we happened to have Emily Swallow, who plays the armorer in The Mandalorian, on as our guest for The Empire yeah. Strikes Back. And it was amazing. But we talked about how this whole thing, everything we're about to talk about today, comes from a 45-second long scene in The Empire Strikes Back. Yep. That's it. The whole world of bounty hunting, the whole concept in Star Wars. It was Wars. just one little moment that George Lucas expanded the universe by leaps and bounds, not having any idea, obviously, that we'd be sitting here talking about a live action television show covering bounty hunting 40 years later. He couldn't have known that. But just how cool it is that those kinds of things in filmmaking can happen and and keeping in mind just how broad and wide spanning the Star Wars universe is. Just this one little scene that showed these kind of creepy, cool villains standing around. That's all they were doing. Standing around looking tough. And it has now become one of the most anticipated moments in Star Wars history, season two, The Mandalorian, followed by one of the most anticipated moments, season one. You know, it's like people were looking forward to this show so much, knowing the people involved in it and the story. And there really wasn't a whole lot of bounty hunting in the original Star Wars movies, if you really think about it. So it's rad. Let's get on to stolen plans. What have you done with those plans? So like you said, flagship series launching with Disney Plus November 12th, 2019, less than a year ago. Tagline, bounty hunting is a complicated profession. Great quote. I mean, I tried it for a bit. It is rough. I got out there, tried a couple bounties. I just, man, it's complicated. It's just like there's so many moving parts, you know, it's just like you just don't want to deal with it. You got to kill somebody. You got to put them somewhere. You got sometimes you got to hold them. It was the murder. They gotta really. pee. I, I couldn't. It's, it's the smell. Honestly, just couldn't get all those bodies on the ship for that long. Yeah, I couldn't get past the murder part. So the carbon freeze is for carbon freeze. Keeps them nice and fresh. <laughs> I couldn't afford the carbon freezing stuff. <laughs> See, <laughs> So this is written 
by John Favreau, produced by John Favreau. This is kind of his brainchild. Chapter one, directed by Dave Filoni of Clone Wars fame. His first live action directorial job. I get the impression that Favreau was very much like on his shoulder, on his back, like Yoda through this yeah. process. Very, very involved. Chapter two, directed by Rick Famuyiwa, I want to say is the pronunciation. There's a great little kind of crew of directors that tackled these eight episodes. And when we get into the Disney Gallery documentary, we'll talk a lot about them. It, they just seem to have this awesome, like, creative startup team vibe with all of them. And it's great that they brought in all these different types it's of It's never been done before. So it is like a startup, you know? I mean, this this is like, hey, buds, we're going to jump in and do the first live action Star Wars TV show. I mean, it's pioneering, really. The Mandalorian stars Pedro Pascal as the Mandalorian. What was his big thing? He's best known, I think, for playing Oberyn Martell in Game of Thrones, who's the Prince of Dorne that gets his face smashed in by the mountain. But prior to getting his face smashed in, dude is kicking ass and taking names. Cool little tidbit. Our buddy Patrick Husinger, who stars in Absentia on Prime Video, he was a guest for what, what movie did we do with him? Rogue One. Right, we did Rogue One with him. They're buddies from Juilliard. So I, I, oh, believe, well. I believe Pedro Pascal studied at Juilliard. He's awesome. Show also stars Carl Weathers. Chubbs Peterson in the building, Apollo Creed himself, Werner Herzog as the client, Nick Nolte, man, Nick <laughs> Nolte as the voice of Kuil, Taika Watiti as the voice of IG-11, Omid Abtahi as Dr. Pershing, and Horatio Sands as the Mithral, who is nameless. He used to evacuate his thorax. <laughs> he hasn't done it since the solstice. Which you don't want to witness. That's the smell you're multi. talking about, Samir. Yep. And then, of course, Emily Swallow as the armorer. Can I say a quick thing about Nick Nolte being cast? Yeah. Think about Nick Nolte being cast. I mean, Nick Nolte rules, but think about him being cast, the tone of his voice. And mm -hmm. I believe somewhere along the way in our 30-something episodes of podcasting, we mentioned something along the lines of this, but the way that Kirill's voice kind of like emulates the sounds of the Ugnaughts and Empire, you yeah. know, like really raspy and kind of like ah, growly sounds. And Nick Nolte like just has that in his voice naturally. So the idea that you imagine an Ugnaught learning to speak language Instead of their their language, whatever the you know that they were speaking in Cloud City, like that's what it would sound like. This is the way that it would sound like a pig with emphysema. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they didn't say let's get Nick Nolte because his voice sounds like an ugnaught. But I <laughs> I noticed that it's kind of a cool coincidence. I wouldn't be surprised if they actually did say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you never know. <laughs> this show is scored by Ludwig Göransson. This score, man. I mean, I, know. I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> try not to, Samir, we try not to break up stolen plans. We try to just like bang through them and every week we fail. It's like, wait, wait, but dude, yeah. the score to this program, yeah. it yeah. is one of the things upon first viewing that I was just absolutely mesmerized by Yeah, just hoping and dreaming to get into scoring and composing for film myself at this phase of my life and career. It's like something I desperately want to make happen. Things like that immediately grab me. You know, I'm just like, you either don't notice it at all or you're like, wow, this show would not be this show without this music. Yeah. 100%. Man, it sets the tone. The way that he uses guitars, mm -hmm. it's beautiful. I mean, like there's a way to, to use those dirty electric guitars and it just sounds cheesy. It's just right. like, okay, yeah. It's the badass sound. Like, oh it, yeah, you want, you want someone's walking in the room and you want to sound badass, you put a guitar in there. But the way that he uses them, it... You it, don't think guitar when you hear it. You don't think guitar. It's just a, a feeling. It, it, the it, vibe. It really is the vibe of the room. He like perfectly 
blended this sort of Middle Eastern, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know, Lawrence of Arabia kind of adventure feel with this like Wild West saloon, high noon whistles, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's just crazy how he took the different influences, I think, from the genres of film that are clearly evident in the filmmaking in The Mandalorian, which I think are sort of these like Indiana Jones adventures. Like, again, I say sort of like Middle Eastern desert planet feeling. And then also like the high noon showdown bounty hunter cowboy feel and made it completely new and original. And also, you know, you watch as much Star Wars as we watch, you're used to these big orchestral scores it's almost jarring. Like it's in a good way, but but it's unmistakably still Star Wars. Yeah, you know but I mean? it like takes you out in a way that's like this is so new and fresh and different and cool. And the soundtrack is a big part of that. I was going to say this is the first time we have something that's not influenced by John Williams as a score. Cuz yeah. other people have scored Star Wars and it all has the themes and the same feel. Mm -hmm. For sure. Especially if you're talking about animation, Rogue One or Solo. This is the first time that like Star Wars as a brand stepped away from John Williams style. Good for him. Good for them. Bases loaded, knocked it out of the park. Like feels like you created another Star Wars music genre and a whole other facet of. Do do you feel it invokes the feeling of, of like a Trent Reznor? Totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think all, that style of composing, it's been for a while now, but that Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross style of composing is just hot. It's huge. Kind of like ambient, pulsing. It's got a little bit of EDM influence to it where you're always going to have that four on the floor going. Droning it, and then some dissonance. Droning, and- yeah, yeah, but it just sets such a, a mood and... You were immediately transported when you started this show by the music. You were. I mean, it was all sensory overload for fans as big as us. You know, you're like, oh my God, it's just, what, what? There's just Star Wars everywhere. There's stormtroopers covered in dirt and there's, it's not Boba Fett, but it's this guy. Like, but then the music was just also, I don't know, it was over the top as far as how it was transporting you into this new world, this new Star Wars place that you we haven't been before i feel like instead of trying to capture nostalgia i think they're trying to capture that awe of what people experienced star wars for the first time absolutely the music made it feel so new you know using old imagery obviously they have to but the music was so new feeling so that was a huge tangent i apologize at stolen plans director Adam Russell, I'm sorry, but I had to, the music just had to be really covered. We're just mixing these two segments. Yeah, it should have gone in first impressions. One day, we're only 32 <laughs> episodes in. One day, I'll get the hang of it. Let's cruise for the rest of these stolen plans and we'll get into the meat of this I'll shit. Shut so, up. I'm shutting up. So these episodes, there's no real defined length. First one was 39 minutes. Second one was 31. They get a little longer later. I mean, it's all under an hour, generally speaking. They also get shorter at some point. Some yeah. of them don't even hit 30 minutes. Yeah. I want my money back. The budget is an estimated $15 million per episode. And for context, in the U.S., the average broadcast network drama costs $3 million per episode, while cable dramas cost about two on average. And those are all an hour long, right. or for at least 45 minutes. But, but between 45 and an hour are network and cable dramas. So you're talking about a half-hour show that costs $15 million. But we'll talk about coming up here how, even though that's a lot, it's still a fraction of what you would expect for the perceived production value. True. This looks like it was shot everywhere in the world, like any Star Wars movie. Yeah. 
Both episodes are 8.7 on IMDb, 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, 93% audience score. Everybody loves this shit. It's the most like unifying, unanimously loved Star Wars anything in a long, long time. 70 on Metacritic. 30% of critics are apparently idiots. <laughs> Nominated for Best Drama, Outstanding Character Voice Over Performance, Production Design for Narrative Program, Cinematography for Single Camera, Fantasy Sci-Fi Costumes, Three Camera Picture, Editing for a Drama Series. I mean, long ass list. I could keep going. Again, everyone loves it. All filmed pretty much in one location. One place. The whole show was shot in one place. Using something called The Volume, which is this indoor set, big soundstage kind of thing that Disney developed with some technology that Unreal Engine and some other folks have been developing. It's not brand new, but the sort of the collection of all the different pieces and the implementation of this is, and it is a complete game changer, like paradigm shift type of technology. So all the green screen stuff from the past, it's kind of obsolete now. They can still do green screen stuff with this, but the idea is that all the backgrounds that typically would get put in after everybody plays around in this big green room instead are being shown on a giant LCD screen. So imagine like you go into any Apple store that has, you know, the big update, those giant screens. It's like that, but 20 feet tall. All around you and above you. Everywhere. The ceiling. All encompassing. So that combined with some practical stuff on the ground, you know, if there's a sand surface, there's sand in that soundstage. There's half of a ship. There's some rocks and crap. But then the set extension that would usually be green screen is all actually playing on a screen. It's helping light the actors. So they're using lighting like they would out in the real world because there's light coming from the scenery. It's mind-blowing. If you haven't watched the Disney gallery behind-the-scenes thing, go watch it. We'll talk about it later. Yeah, we'll dive into that more. There's also some great stuff on the Unreal Engine YouTube channel talking about kind of like the foundations of that technology. So they moved the camera and the background moves relative to the camera. It's all tracked in 3D space. It's incredible. It's a total game changer. I think one of the most important things to note about that technology. I never got far enough doing theater and and acting because as we've talked about, I'm a two-time college dropout and joined a band to piss off my parents instead of continuing to pursue acting, which I had done my entire life till I was 19 years old. But I'm imagining the difference in a green wall. You know, I'm playing the Mandalorian. And there's a big green wall that is the desert that I'm riding through. You're sitting on a green horse saddle? Yes. Versus now the director isn't going, okay, Vader's castle is there and there's lava pouring out of every side of it. And instead of the director giving you this, they're just like, all right, uh, action. And you're like, holy <laughs> yeah. shit. It's like being in a VR experience or, or a, on a ride at Disney World, you know, but you're performing in that. So however far this technology takes us, it has to be a game changer, not just on the production side, but also on the acting side, as far as being a performer who is now completely immersed in the environment that you're, you're performing in. So I can't imagine how cool that was for all of these actors on set for the Mandalorian to be show up for work and then be like, okay, step into, you know what it reminds me of is like the Truman show vibe, but you know what I mean? Like the whole thing was kind of in that dome and he found the wall. Yeah. It's like, all right, step inside the door here. And when you step in, you're on the planet. You're just, you're on it, you know? So I imagine many studios will follow suit with this technology. Last thing on this before we get moving. I remember watching behind the scenes. I want to say it was on Unreal's YouTube channel when they kind of announced all this at their conference. And there was 
a DP or something talking about a producer who came in to see something they were working on and walked in and was like, oh man, I didn't realize we were building out so much practical stuff. And they're like, no man, that's the wall. That's the screen. <laughs> it looked that authentic. Yeah. yeah. So until you get up close and get past like, you know, the rock and everything and see where the sand ends and the screen starts, you're in it. It's crazy. Even watching it on camera, like third person behind the other camera, it's hard to tell where the real stuff stops and the screen starts. So cool. All right, let's put this whole show in context. So this takes place post-Empire. Five years post. Yeah, five years after the Battle of Endor, 9 ABY. Like Ryan mentioned earlier, that 45 seconds from the Empire Strikes Back that established this world of bounty hunting, this is what we're in. We've got bounty pucks, tracking fobs, a guild using cryo-freeze for transport. All this just cool, all these cool details that, that really immerse us. We're learning more than just like, oh, that guy's scary. He's going to get him. You know, we're fully in it. Mm. And this being post-Empire, it really evokes some things. When we first meet the client, played by Werner Herzog, I really got this post-World War II kind of like remaining Nazi loyalist kind of vibe. Ryan, <laughs> you being the historian, the history buff, tell us a little bit about this. You did some homework, right? Yeah, um, to not go on and on and on about it. I mean, you can give kind of a very quick synopsis about about how this could be very much believable what happened to the empire, the remnants of the empire. I mean, we talked about as we're warming up for the show that the stormtroopers you see have been called in canon remnant troopers, right, Nick? I mean, that's that's something that they're calling them. Like, yep. So during World War II, leading up to World War II, South America, Argentina in particular, but Argentina, Peru, Chile, these countries were maybe unknowingly at the beginning sympathetic to the the Nazi movement and the Nazi party, but there were a lot of German immigrants that had gone from where, you know, where there were a lot of Irish and Italian immigrants to ports in Boston and New York. There were a lot of German immigrants in South America before the war had even begun. So during the war, Argentina in particular, but several South American countries were very sympathetic to the German cause and the fascist movement. And therefore, when the war ended, before there was kind of a full-on lockdown and you couldn't get out of Germany, many, many, many war criminal, Nazi war criminals were able to escape through Italy and Spain and Portugal. Some of these these ports, they were able to get out and get to South America where they were kind of waiting with open arms. The Argentinian president at the time, or prime minister, whatever his title was, he was very sympathetic to the fascist ideals. So he was waiting there with open arms for all these these Nazis to come and seek refuge there. So I think it's another example, actually, of how much of Star Wars is based in that great conflict in real life, right? The idea of warfare in our mind, I think, is so determined by the events of World War II. You know what I mean? When you when you think of warfare, you don't necessarily immediately go to the Russian Revolution or Napoleon or the, the American Revolution even. Well, she wouldn't look at me like that, Napoleon. Napoleon. <laughs> I think World War II is such a, a place where our minds go when we consider warfare. And we've talked about this at length. It's just obvious how much of the empire is rooted in the ideas and conflicts around World War II. Kind of off topic, but do you think that's because of that's when the art of propaganda film was really starting to take off? Of course. So so those images are kind of ingrained in society. I I think so. I I think that and and that it it was the it's it's the it's the most captured experience in war. Yeah. It's the most documented experience. We 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 have 
all the facts. There's video proof, you know, those kinds of things. Like much farther back than that, it's, yeah, we found some reels and we're restoring them or we have this handed down and this handed down. But we have some letters about the Civil War. Yeah, like, but we know exactly what happened in Germany. We know how Hitler came to power. We know, you know, so the emperor and Vader and the empire, I mean, the uniforms, you know, with the, with the, the wide hipped pants, all of that stuff. I mean, it's all influenced, I think, in Lucas's original vision of being like this sort of space fascist regime in space. Yeah. I think it's so cool to think where this show is going to go, knowing that there inevitably would have been cells, pockets of Mm -hmm. of imperial rule, imperial officers that would have made it out. Loyalists. You're not talking about a planet like planet Earth. Okay, I got to go to another country. You're talking about all this cool stuff we have, you know, in canon now with Admiral Thrawn and all, all these pockets of imperial rule that weren't at the Battle of Yavin. They weren't at the Battle of Endor. Where did they go? What did they do? They didn't... Not like you lose the war and everyone just goes, uh, well, yeah. okay, I'm switching teams. <laughs> They're still out there. The rebels didn't have, prior to what we're talking about, the Mandalorian, the rebels didn't have the power to annihilate the entire Imperial fleet. You know, they cut off the head of the snake, so to speak, but where did all these guys go? So I think that scene of the client, it's so cool. It's this diabolical, evil, imperial dude, officer, priest looking almost, you know, he, he, he's not even like a Senator or an officer. He, he's like one of the guys at the country club drinking brandy and smoking cigars, pulling the strings, you know, he's one of those with his necklace. And, and so seeing that with his guards and I, and I love that, like the remnant troopers, because this was a thing too, post-World War II, a lot of these guys were escaping with like security detail. They they had minions of fanatical fascists that would be like, I'm coming with you. You know, I'm, I'll protect yeah, you yeah. at all costs and we'll, we'll rebuild the Reich somewhere else and we'll, we'll come back and we'll take it back over. You know, that was, people believe that. And you have to think that the remnants of the empire thought the same thing. We're going to find a place to hide out. We'll regroup and we'll take this thing back. And that's why, and I'll end it here, when he says it's nice to see the natural order of things restored. Yeah. His belief that the empire is the proper way that it's the natural order is for there to be a, a ruling empire i love it i love it and so it's a multifaceted no, quote it, it's like that statement is juxtaposed with the tattered uniforms of the stormtroopers you know yeah it's that that visual of, of first walking into that room and seeing the stormtroopers and it's like slow motion and it sort of turns around or walks into frame and you're like it's just tattered and dirty. Like they've gone through something like, and they, but he's not, and neither is right, uh, yeah. Dr. Pershing. They're not. And I think there's something cool to that, that we oftentimes have this vision of stormtroopers based on the original trilogy. We have this vision of them kind of being like a dime a dozen expendable, not, you know, not very accurate, not very efficient. But I, I think there's a desire in star Wars from a Filoni and a Favreau standpoint, at least maybe to change that because we want to show that the empire had a mil- that they were a military might, you know, these were soldiers and the idea that these guys are all tattered and beat to shit means they have gone through hell and survived to protect this guy because whatever his belief set is, is their belief set. 
And that's yeah. where it aligns with this kind of World War II escapism. We got it, we're getting out of here and we're gonna we're gonna regroup and rebuild. You know, and that was a thing in Argentina. The Nazis banded together in Argentina thinking they were gonna rebuild the party there and, and return home and start over again, you know. So I don't know. I think there's definitely a parallel there. And I and I think there's so many cool places for this show to go where these guys could be scattered throughout the galaxy. For further context, Nick. Yes. Tell us about Mandalorians. I'm ready to learn. It's me, Nick, your Mandalorian historian. <laughs> yeah. Teach me. Put on your helmet. I mean, it, it's there's definitely info out there, but there hasn't been a lot of like on-screen info. And there's kind of some points here that I want to let everyone know in like a cliff note sense. Mandalore is a planet in the outer rim, has one orbiting moon called Concordia, which is habitable by people. Mandalorians go way back, thousands of years. They were violent warriors, and a lot of their conflicts actually were with Jedi in the Old Republic era. One thing about Mandalorian armor and weaponry is that they developed that armor and weaponry to combat the like mysticism of the Force. Jetpacks, flamethrowers, all this type of stuff was meant to kind of level the playing field with the Jedi, who obviously had the Force. So after many years of actual war with the Jedi, Mandalore, the planet, was left inhospitable and the remaining citizens were actually all resigned to living in these dome structures and cities were inside dome structures because you just couldn't live on the surface anymore. Total recall style. Yes. This is the state they're in when we meet them in the Clone Wars, Yes, right? exactly. The conflicts eventually ended and a peaceful regime around the time of the Clone Wars was led by Duchess Satine Cries, which uh, brings us into the animated series of the Clone Wars where we meet them, like you said. And she was a pacifist. She wanted a pacifist-leaning society, which went against the Mandalore warrior mentality fully. Any warrior, Mandalorian warrior, who did not believe in a pacifistic society was exiled to the moon of Concordia. That's also where, this is a little bit of a tangent, Django slash Boba Fett. Obviously, they wear Mandalorian armor, but there's no canon fact that they are Mandalorian. They, but uh, they grew up in the, in the same system. Yes, they were on Concordia. And at most, you can say that some of the Mandalorian like hierarchy just kind of wrote Jango Fett off as a mercenary. So it's not like sussed out in canon that he was like part of a Mandalorian clan or anything like that. So he's kind of just written off and like shoved to the side as a mercenary and potentially even stole that armor. So I think they'll probably kind of focus what a Fett is or who a Fett is eventually because of this show. But uh, as a side note, Django and and this is extremely confusing. Imagine telling this. I had to explain this to my mom, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> Django and Boba are not, uh, as of now, technically Mandalorians. And they're not Death Watch either, no. which you're probably about to talk about. Yeah, they're not. So some more important players and things to know about Mandalore. Tar Vizsla, thousands of years ago, was the first Mandalorian to ever be accepted into the Jedi Order. He created the Darksaber, and after his passing, it was held in the Jedi Temple on Coruscant for a very long time until members of his family, Mandalorians are part of clans, so Clan Vizsla stole the saber back during a battle in the fall of the Old Republic. One thing about having the Darksaber, the people of Mandalore are going to follow you as the leader of Mandalore if you have the Darksaber. It's also the focus of a major arc at the end of Rebels, right? Yep. Rebels, Clone Wars, it's all in there. The, the Darksaber changed hands a lot. So generations later, the story of the Vizsla clan picked up 21 BBY, a descendant of Tar Vizsla named Pre Vizsla. Another tangent, John Favreau voiced Pre Vizsla. 
And oh, yeah. tangent to that tangent, the name Previsla is like a nerdy tech thing, like pre-visualization. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of along the lines of being nerdy, like R2-D2 is real to... Real to... Two. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, Previsla just wound up being like a George Lucas, like funny, like oh, let's name it Previsla, you know, previsualization, whatever. So Previsla was exiled on Concordia, and while he was there, he helmed Death Watch, which was the first kind of group of people who wanted to bring Mandalorian warriors back during a peaceful and pacifistic society. Another important member of Death Watch was Duchess Satine's own sister, Bo-Katan, who kind of went back and forth. She was a part of Death Watch and then kind of became a Mandalorian loyalist and was kind of grouped along people like Ahsoka and stuff like that by the end of the Clone Wars. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of your cliff notes that you need to know those kind of players, where and what Mandalore is, and just to get it out of the way, Jango and Boba, not technically Mandalorian as of now. Something interesting about this Mandalorian and his customs and maybe indications of what his clan is all about when we hopefully eventually learn that is that he doesn't take off his helmet yeah. with a religious devotion mm-hmm. to that. And Jango Fett obviously did. Yeah. Right. And the Mandalorians, that Satine and all of the Vizsla clan all day long. Oh, hey, how you doing? Let me take off yeah. my helmet and talk to you. So totally different vibe. Again, I don't think that that is necessarily said anywhere, but I think exactly what you think. I think it's a clan thing. I'm going to do a quick kind of plot overview, and then we'll get into certain point of view and so on. So chapter one. We're introduced to this world in a cantina. There's some kind of shady stuff going on. These dudes are roughing up the Mithral voiced by Horatio Sands. Mando shows up. I mean, there might as well be a tumbleweed going through there. He shows up. That was great. Like a gangster-ass cowboy. Turns out Horatio Sands' character is the bounty that Mando is trying to capture. So he gets him. They go aboard the ship. Some drama ensues. He takes the Mithral back to Apollo Creed, the bounty pimp. (laughs) <laughs> and immediately he's like, all right, what's next? I'm trying to think of an actual word for it, for bounty pimp. What his actual job title would be. I don't know. Keep going. I'm going to keep thinking. So Apollo Creed, Grief Karga, he immediately says, what else you got? What's your highest paying thing? I'll take them all. You know? And he's like, no, no, that's not the way this works. Everybody else in the guild, they need to work too. And he's like, well, give me the biggest one. He's like, well, there is one thing, but there's no puck. There's no name. There's an age. You're going to go meet this person and they're going to send you in the right direction. So it's, it's really mysterious, but it's high paying. So he says, cool, I'll do that. So he goes to meet this client who turns out to be Werner Herzog. Like we this talked about awesome. that <laughs> post-World War II vibe. Says he's going to pay him X amount of Beskar steel, which is a big deal, for the bounty brought back alive. He'll pay him less with confirmation of a kill. The dude who's with the client, Dr. Pershing, is like, no, 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 no. That wasn't part of the deal. We want him alive. And he's like, shut up. Bounty hunting is complicated, but... Exactly. He then gets on a ship. He goes to this planet that is not named in the episode, but we've learned it's called Arvala 7. He meets Kuil, learns how to ride a Blurg, because apparently if he's going to go get this bounty, he can't take a speeder or something. He has to use the local animal. A female Blurg, because all the males are eaten by the females (laughs) during mating. (laughs) We met Blurgs somewhere else in the Clone Wars, but this is the first live-action version, so... There's this very, I mean, they're like really sticking with the Western thing. He's in a damn corral learning how to ride this thing like a horse. Yeah. yeah, So then he travels with Kuil to the outpost where the other bounty hunters are guarding the package. Turns out they were just throwing out tracking fobs. He wasn't the only one. I mean, they're breaking all the guild rules. And this has to be like a group of bounty hunters that are like, all right, we'll split it. Because it's that much money. There's quite a few of them there. 
So he sees from a distance a droid, an IG droid. And he's like, ah, damn it, droids. He has a thing with droids that we don't know the root of yet. He gets in there, says like, I'm here for the bounty. The droid's like, well, I'm here for the bounty. It's like, okay, well, let's split it. I can do that. Cool. And then a battle ensues. Everybody starts firing all the other bounty hunters. There's a huge battle. (laughs) IG-11 keeps insisting he's got to just self-destruct over and over. It's like, no, 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 we're we're cool. Now I'm going to self-destruct. No, no, shut up. Get over here. Over and over and over. Eventually, they get this big sort of cannon that's brought in to shoot them. They take it down. Mando just wipes them all out. They shoot down the door. They get in there to where the bounty is. They're using the tracking fob. Beep, 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 beep. It's getting closer and closer. Dude pops out from the corner. They blast him. And now it's just the package. There's this pile of stuff. He pulls up to it. And there's this little pod, a little kind of floating bassinet kind of thing. This is the bounty. They open it up. And you see from the back, looking up at the Mandalorian, you see this little ear, little green ear. Then it flips around and this blanket comes down and it's, I just got goosebumps. It's a little (laughs) baby Yoda. We don't know the name of the species still, but that's what this is. Again, goosebumps head to toe. When I was watching this, I was like, there were so many things along the way that I was like, oh, this is kind of, I don't know, this is kind of unfamiliar. You know, I wasn't like, I was in, but I wasn't like fully in. And then I saw that and I like stood up off my couch like, bro, oh my God, I'm in. This is it. I'm in. (laughs) And that sick wide shot, it ends with a little like Adam- to God, a little E.T. finger touch. Yeah. Roll credits. Holy shit. A little, a little, out. <laughs> so one thing that was interesting to me, that was absolutely the biggest like reveal since the Vader being Anakin yeah. Skywalker. Luke, like absolutely. So hats off to Lucasfilm and Disney for like not having made toys that could have leaked that, you know, the child yep. was what it was. But, and I do have to find this interview somewhere. Favreau, a thousand percent said this Mandalorian series is going to dive into the origins of Yoda's species and also <laughs> the origin of the First Order. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't think it was going to be like the child slash baby Yoda is the main storyline. Right. So First episode, I got to yeah. find where he said that. He absolutely said that somewhere. So that's another thing that's coming up is like, what does any of this have to do with like the seeds of the First Order in the seasons coming up? Yeah. I'm going to say no hats off to the internet <laughs> because we didn't ask where were you the first time you saw it? Because, you know, I don't know. You were at home. Like, it's not like a movie where we do that on these episodes. Well, I was on tour. Same. And I was waiting for a night off, you know, no show. So all I was to, I was on tour with my buds in Newfound Glory, who there are several hardcore Star Wars fans in that band and crew. So it was like, let's wait till we can all sit down one night and do this thing. And I... In keeping with most of, of our no spoiler backed, I had nothing, dude. I, I, I'd seen nothing. I had read nothing. And it was just one, it was one little swipe of the thumb, just one little swipe up. And I was like, that silence. That's what I was like. I just, <laughs> I knew that I had just seen what was going to be the biggest reveal since I'm your father. I, I <laughs> saw it on a stupid Instagram <laughs> post. Yeah. Like It wasn't even like a Star Wars post because they wouldn't have done that. It was some other just stupid thing that I swiped past. So 
I was still like blown away by every second of the first episode of the show. I was so like, yes. And and I won't get into this because I've talked about it a million times. I love Star Wars when it feels very based in like reality. I love Rogue One because of how grounded and real it feels. It's like not so much fantasy. It's like this is actually the Rebel Alliance and this is what warfare would look like in another galaxy. And I love how real it feels and grimy and dirty and real. So this show is that to me for sure. It just feels totally grounded and real and believable. And this is what life would be like in these systems, in this other galaxy. I think the show does a great job of portraying that. And I, I really like that. So so that was all really attractive to me, the whole 30, you know, 40 minutes or whatever. But the whole time I'm going like, when is it happening? When is it happening? You know, I knew that at some point, probably the end, there was going to be a little teeny infant Yoda thing. And it just, to this day, crushes my little Star Wars heart because I won't ever feel what you felt when you got up off your couch. I'll never know what it was like to watch it and then go, holy shit. I'll never know what that felt like. It's tragic. I hate the internet. I hate the internet. (laughs) All right. Chapter two starts with Mando and the child sort of heading back to the ship from the town where he picked him up. And along the way, a group of Trandoshans, they come up on him because they have fobs as well. They're still trying to get the bounty. They're still trying to get the child. So he has to whoop all their asses, and it's a dope fight. Beats them, gets back to his ship, and catches in the act a bunch of Jawas stripping his ship. So he like goes at the Jawas, pulls out his blaster rifle, disintegrates a couple of them, then says like, F- this, I'm going to go get my stuff back. His ship's destroyed. So he goes to, he chases them essentially to their sand crawler and it's massive. It's like a fortress on wheels. So he's trying to get in there. The windows are opening, like they're throwing stuff at him. It's like, it's almost like kind of slapsticky, but it's very cool at the same time. He's like ripping them out of the windows and throwing them left and right. Savage. Savage Just so. murdering these little creatures. It was, it was cartoonish and brutal all at once. Yeah. Because when he first rolled up, he was, like you said, he was just like sniping them and full disintegrate, it, only disintegrating the organic parts, apparently, like the... Yeah, the clothing still is like, yeah. you know, almost like Obi-Wan disappearing, like the, yeah. the robe is still there. So then he finally gets all the way up to the top, and he's about to take the sand crawler, but then a couple of them pop out with their little electric blasters, and they all hit him, and he just like, just like R2, just... Just falls from the top, hits the sand, he's done, he's fully unconscious. He then wakes up, and the child's there, like, hey, what happened? They head back to Kuil. And he's like, the Jawas destroyed my ship. I need to fix it somehow. And Quill's like, no, Jawas don't destroy. They just steal. We need to just go talk to them. And he's like, they don't like me very much. (laughs) Clearly, because he just massacred a bunch of them. So he takes them there to actually negotiate. And they want to take the child. They want his Beskar armor. And he's like, no, screw you. Flamethrower. (laughs) (laughs) Middle of a negotiation, flamethrower. So they agree. If he goes to get this egg, they'll give him the parts back. So he has to go to this cave where there's this giant creature. We find it looks kind of like a, like a woolly rhinoceros called a mudhorn. He has to steal this animal's egg. He gets his ass kicked. And it just throws him around like a rag doll. And he's about to be just finished. The mudhorn starts coming at him. He always got is this knife, this little dagger. We find out it's called a vibroblade. It's a Mandalorian weapon. Thanks, Nick. He charges at him. And then right when the shit's about to hit the fan, we cut to this shot of a little hand. Little green claw hand. Goosebumps. Goosebumps. And then back to a wide shot of the mudhorn 
hovering in midair. The child is trying using to run. Force. You see its hooves. Yeah, like it's, yeah. it's trying like to run. It's swimming. not going anywhere. And the Mandalorian just like, what the f***? On the ground, thought he was dead. And then the child finally, he's sort of spent. Mudhorn hits the ground. Mando stabs him in, in the neck. He's dead. They leave. Mando takes off to go deliver the child, which I'm bummed about at this point, you know? Like, dude, he just saved you. This is the cutest thing I've ever seen in my life. You're going to just go, go <laughs> you're going to deliver him? So yeah. he, that's what he's going to do. He gets in the ship, and the child's just asleep the whole time because he's spent. And right. uh, Mando's thinking, like, is he dead? Am I screwed? Do I not get my full payment? He's probably thinking. But then he wakes up. We hear, like, the, the little baby cooing kind of thing, and he comes up behind him like, hey, man, it's, here. it's me. I'm cool. <laughs> and then we roll credits. I think there's something to be said for when the mud horn is floating. The idea that we've discussed about this period in the Star Wars universe, no one has ever seen the Force. Right. Even during the battles of Yavin and Endor, it's still myth because the Jedi are gone. Yeah. And I think the Empire just kind of erased that part of history. Yeah, propaganda too. Propaganda, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Like not only did they actually erase them, at this point throughout the galaxy, the Jedi, the Sith, all of that is just lore. It's just legend. I mean- They spent 25 years trying to erase it from history. 25 years from now when we meet Finn and Rey and they meet Han Solo and one of my favorite moments in Star Wars, it's true, all of it. You know, that that idea- I I wasn't even thinking that during- episode four, five, and six, that really the only Jedi was Luke. Of course, yeah. Obi-Wan at the beginning, but then then Luke. And, and this is for other podcasts and, and canon and the Star Wars story group of like what other Jedi were there and are there. I mean, right. where is Cal Kestis from Fallen Order, the video game, which is canon? Where is he later on? Because he's a Jedi. Where's Ahsoka? And he, he got out. Where's Ahsoka? Yeah. So there is that. But still, they're, they're so, I mean... Order 66, for the most part, wiped them out. So this would be like, I mean, put this in modern day religion. I mean, and in, in its early phases of Christianity or Islam or anything like the priests who were telling these stories, but the the real, the guy, the prophet Muhammad or the son of God, Jesus, they weren't around anymore. So this is all just people telling these stories, right? To say, no, this really happened. That's Jedi lore. And that's Sith it's interesting lore. now when I think about it, like, you know, Obi-Wan went, in, went into exile. And so how many other Jedi decided to go? Exactly. To- and so many stories to tell. Dude, there's so many stories to tell they could they could do with that. Ah, so cool. But my point was just that the Mando's reaction to this is I've heard these stories since I was in diapers. And that little thing just lifted this giant beast into the air. Like, whoa. I think you know? there was a, a musical moment too. I want to say it was with guitar where Ludwig literally, I think, hits the first two notes of the force theme, but that's it. Oh, when, when it's floating. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, dun, dun. And then different, yeah. Real, <sighs> just gets your, gets your brain going. But it falls into a flat five. That's, I dropped out of college, Samir, so I only took one theory <laughs> class. So you, be, that's, that's you know, I, I didn't say beyond college. I, <laughs> I, I took college, uh, my last two years of high school, I did some college stuff. And then after I graduated is when Flyleaf started. And I, I stopped registering for still classes. Know, you still know that Ludwig dropped to a flat five. So that brother is just, I mean, I tried to take a class to learn that shit and didn't. So. You win. I think I did. I'm sure. I'm sure some other uh, theory nerd out there is be like, no, actually, it was <laughs> screaming at his phone. <laughs> no, it's a Dorian six. It was, it was actually a, a flat two. 
All right, so there are almost zero gripes, practically, on this. Almost zero. But still, we have a few things to look at from a certain point of view. A certain point of view? Many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. This is a small one, and I'm just being a troll almost with this, but coins in space? Calamari flan. Calamari flan, physical, like, what? I mean, instead of the credits? Yeah, like, why, why doesn't he throw him some credits with Venmo? We're, we got spaceships. We're rolling around with coins. Wait, 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 wait. Because this, this happened a long time ago. <laughs> okay. I may, uh, this isn't anything new for me to say this, but I, I hope it puts your mind at ease a little bit. It goes to that idea that they have spaceships with Atari screens in them, that, yeah. that their technology is designed for the survival of whichever species, race, whatever you want to call it, you know, in the galaxy, you're working for that. With the exception of a few glimpses of Coruscant or um, Canto Bite, we haven't seen the lap of luxury in Star Wars. You know, there isn't, (laughs) it feels industrial everywhere you go. It feels like everyone is grinding it out everywhere you go. So I've always loved the idea that makes it make sense in my mind for why obviously they look like Atari screens in 1977, but then in 2015, they still look like Atari screens because the technology was not focused on how many pixels you could cram into a 4.6 inch screen. The technology was focused into how do we make the Kessel run in less parsecs? Like it's a different idea. So currency, I, I don't see that being where we're focused on Google Pay and Apple Pay and Samsung Pay and Android Pay and Alexa Pay and whatever the hell else is. Walmart Pay. I don't see that being a focus of the engineers in the galaxy far, far away a long time ago. I I just don't. Yeah. So I, I like this sort of medieval and futuristic like melting pot that well, is star wars any like imperial conquest era you know you think about colonization you think about how these native peoples are just they're thrown into this mess of things by people showing up trying to take their land but then they trade with them they give them these amazing technologies that they barely know how to use so they're still trading beaver pelts yet they have guns you know so it makes enough sense to me. I just had to be annoying and drop that one in. This just came into my head. I'll, I'm, I'm shut up. I'm rambling a lot tonight. I'm sorry. Uh, but this just popped in my head. All these people come from different systems, different corners of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. So technology aside, maybe there's an Apple Pay that works on every single system in the entire galaxy. Right. But again, I like the sort of medieval bartering and trading idea that you got to have Beskar steel. You got to have whatever it is, you know, not gold. I assume, but gold. If you're traveling from here to there and you're doing a transaction with me, I got to have a resource, a mineral. Yeah. Best card makes the most sense. That has value. Think about this with the Mandalorian. He didn't want a droid. He didn't want to like have a droid take him from point A to point B. Like he wanted a human being. Like he, yeah. I don't think he wants a right. record. He doesn't want anyone recording what he's doing. He doesn't want a record of his transactions. Yeah, he's right. trying I to think stay he analog. Needs so trade hard goods analog, and then you can't be traced. Yeah. And Beskar is a straight-up resource that he needs, a material. So that one makes the most sense for sure. That's dope. Well, ho- hopefully we helped here with Coins in Space. Coins in Space, case closed. <laughs> coins in Space. <laughs> That's we a should, good shirt. Yeah, there it is. That's a shirt. That's a shirt. <laughs> coins in Space with two question marks. <laughs> All right, this one is this is a generational thing and I'm finding myself falling in the middle. 
Quill as a practical puppeted mask rather than a oh, CG I love it. I face love it. or a Same. CG enhanced practical mask. I am going to be, I'm not trying to be the contrarian, but I'm going to be the, the one out in this conversation. I don't love it. His mouth doesn't make the right shapes that go with the sounds that he's making. Agreed. I agree with that, but it, it definitely grabs the nostalgia of, of classic Star Wars. And to me, the Blurgs, I wasn't going to do any gripes. The Blurgs look like shit. The Blurgs look all, just above the added Blurgish things that the Stormtroopers are riding in Dubacks. In the um, special edition. On Tatooine. On Tatooine. Yeah. yeah what, all, the, all the added CG in the 90s. The Blurgs look a little bit above that. And when I watched it, I thought, well, it's not a feature film. It's TV. So it's not going to be the best CG that money can buy because they're right. on an episodic. And the Blurgs are what made me think that. So while I agree his voice, is, his mouth is not doing exactly the right movements, I'll take that over going like... Mm-hmm. like what do you think about this? I, mean, I, I can probably have a full conversation without moving my mouth too much. You know I mean? <laughs> right. like, hey, guys, how are you doing? Yeah, we I'm just hanging out here with moves. you guys in a podcast. A podcast, I didn't lose lips, but in a co- <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Someday we'll get more, we'll get good enough to not have to edit these as much and we can, we can do the video like normal podcasters. <laughs> so we can see Samir's face. I do um, like the, uh, you know, I think you mentioned, Samir, the like almost like nostalgic like puppeting. I think overall, man, the entire first season has not necessarily Star Wars nostalgia because obviously it has that, but it has like 80s nostalgia everywhere. There's like yeah. random montages of like fixing a ship or Flashbacks. learning how to, yeah, that type of thing. I honestly, in my head, the first month or so that this was released, I thought some of the music sounded like almost like Rocky a little bit, you know, like that yeah. like horn ensemble, you know, yeah. like that yeah, type dude. of thing. Yeah, I know exactly the, the Rocky theme. I, I heard yeah, it. Yeah. I've heard it over and over again. Like, mm-hmm. that's Rocky. I know yeah. exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. So that, I think there's just overall, I mean, even getting like... Like that. It definitely had that vibe. I think also just like... I think with choosing some actors too, like Carl Weathers has an, you know, besides oh, yeah. some like guest roles Nick on, Nolte, on Arrested dude. Development. Yeah, Nick Nolte. Like there is just some like really... Apollo Creed was in the film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, I think that's slightly on purpose too. And yeah. honestly, this will lead into my overall gripe a little bit, but I think that there's a lot of kind of nostalgia in there to help plant the seeds that this would land with who it needed to land with to be successful, like our generation, basically. I wonder if people in their early 20s or late teens, like my nephew's 19, I wonder what he thinks about that puppet mouth. If he's like, what the hell is this? That's the thing. And I bet the blurg looks totally normal to him. Like we accept puppets whose mouths don't do the right thing as real, even though that is a huge flaw. Kids probably accept not great CG as real because that's their nostalgic reference point. You know what I mean? I think it's it's my issue. It's one of the things that makes me feel the most old man in my life is knowing the reason I don't like Avatar is because I think it doesn't look good. But I know that especially younger people Mm -hmm. think it just looks real. Because that's what they're, you, you know what I mean? That's yeah. I, I don't think it looks real, but I think it looks awesome. <laughs> oh, God, same, I, can't, same. I can't do it, dude. I can't even, I can't get through the first 10 minutes of that movie. I can't we are like truly the only generation that like will have had both 
like exactly. that mm-hmm. 80s right in the slash early 90s. So we're like the only and definitely last generation to to have that reference yeah. of what it used to be like. I feel like one of that, one of that generation, like, you know, back when electricity started go, going into homes. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember uh, when you know, we, yeah, had, like, had, we had oil lamps. I'm like, I'm like, I'm oil. This, is a, this white, is a complete you know? tangent on a, on a podcast. We're already going way over time, <laughs> but I'm watching The Sopranos with my parents. They've never seen it, so we're watching it. I'm watching it over again for the first... I've never watched it a second time, and I just watched an episode where this tiny little thing happened, but Carmela is in the kitchen going through the mail, and she's like, this Earthlink and America Online, they just just send you these CD-ROMs. And I was like, oh my God, they did. They sent free CD-ROMs to your mailbox so that you would stick it in your computer to get the trial. Like now it's like, Download Disney Plus, 14 days free. You used to have to put a CD-ROM in to get the free trial. So they mailed them to you. And you're right. We are always going to be the generation where the internet was like, "Um, you guys, that's called a vacuum cleaner. Like we're going to be that generation. Uh, yeah. The internet is that to us. And and CGI, you know, in that way, computing is that to us. Like yeah. we weren't there for the dawn of computing and film wasn't at the dawn of computing, but we were there for the dawn of computing and film, you know, together. Yeah. Like Jurassic Park. Think about what a game changer that was. What a breakthrough yeah. that was. That was one of the first real big computer generated graphic film things to happen. And we were like, 13 when that came out or whatever 11 you know i mean it was so i still see it that's the problem i see it so when this particular gripe is great because it's it's an exact juxtaposition of the two things in the same freaking scene yeah like do i want to see a real practical effect or do i want to see cgi i just i don't know i agree that the mouth moving is like the thing where you go like oh that's womp but at the same time, it's a body, it's an actor, it's a feeling. It's like the other actor in the scene is reacting to what he's really seeing there in front of him. And I, I don't know. I think there's something special about that. I guess I'm just spoiled by characters like Maz, yeah. who looks incredible. Yeah, agreed. Great. All the emotion. Never for a second was I thinking about her being a person with a motion cap suit on. Agreed. I would say you know, the practical effects and the practical makeup, I, I feel like it's refreshing for me. And yeah. now, don't you think now it's harder You know what I mean? Like, it's harder for them to go out and do that and make it look real. You have to pay the actor overtime because it's it's, it's, it's like to sit and make up for how many hours to get that thing on. Right. And it's like the other way around where it used to be that the the CGI guys were trying to say, well, how can we do this to make it look as real as the real thing? Now, now the practical effects people are going, how do we make this look as good as the CGI? Yeah. It's wild. All right, next point. How does baby Yoda, how does an infant know how to use the force? Species age differently, man. It has been hanging out for 50 years. You know, even children, like you know, toddlers, kind of figure out how to find the cookie jar sort of thing. Right. It, might, it might be that. I have my three-year-old niece here with me this weekend, and I've been fascinated for 72 hours by the things that she understands the words that come out of her mouth 
the way she problem solves as someone who has no desire to become a parent ever in my in my life on my own i'm still fascinated by other people's kids and i like i love hanging out with kids i, I like i want to go to disney world every day for the rest of my life so hanging out with a three-year-old is great i love it like let's let's build sandcastles and i'm all about it just as long as i can give them back at the end of the night you know right, just but, rentals not yes yeah not rental purchasing. kids are great but watching and and hear you know and learning from like her just ability to understand the world it it's pretty unbelievable. So I I would assume that we're not going to get any deeper retconning or description of how that's possible other than think about how your three-year-old can figure shit out. Because if you really think about that, they can fig- they figure a lot of shit out, well, man. It's, it's like instinct, you know? It's instinct. That, that, brings, exactly. that brings a really Nick. good point. The, the fact that they can figure a lot of stuff out brings a really good point. Did Baby Yoda... I'm like, that's what I'm going to call it. I don't know. Like, the, <laughs> did the child understand that it was in captivity? And you could it have used the force to, to get out of the situation? You know, I, why does it feel some sort of allegiance to, to Mando? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. I picture a little kid, just a sweet little kid, who when someone gets hurt or falls or their parent is crying that comes over and just tries to give them a hug or like tries to like give them a kiss on the knee to fix the boo-boo. You know what I mean? They're copying what they see in the world and they're feeling emotions and trying to do stuff, like you said, Ryan, trying to just figure shit out. And if you're a super powerful, force-sensitive being, I guess it's like, oh, stop it. And you just reach your hand out. Just stop. 50 years in captivity, Adam. I guess it's been long enough to where the child has a pretty long backstory. Yeah. Or who knows, maybe that child has been with a family for a long time, and then they acquired him, but then he escaped or someone else took him. Like, who knows how he got there? He could have spent 49. At least the bounty is is 50 years old. The Empire has known about, or Werner Herzog, the client, he's known about this for 50 years. Or Does it he say that? Bounty or is it just the, the age? Well, the bounty is 50 years old. Because the bounty has a code on it. Like how long? The they, bounty yeah, itself yeah. is 50 years old. Oh, whoa. So this child has been transported around being hidden for, for 50 years, trying to you know, dodge all the, all the bounty. Oh, whoa. Nick, you just said instinct, right? Yeah. Like, well, it's just like a deer being born and like being able to walk right away, you know, or like, being yeah. able to run. That's what I was gonna say. Being able to run from danger. Yeah. Like animals that are not, you know, elevated beings with thumbs, yeah. right? They know how to escape danger almost out of the womb. So, so this would be a different question then. So is, is it an instinct of the species or is it an instinct of having force power? Yeah. I would say both, the intersection of the two. I think we might be dealing with the only species that's guaranteed to have force power. Yeah. This species yet to be named is the origin of the force. They they are born with the force, all of them. They're I'm speculating like this is the uh this is the answer to where did the first Jedi come from? You know, that's that's it's as simple as running from danger or pulling your hand back from a hot stove as as a little kid. Yeah. Okay. I liked what you said, Samir. I think, Samir, you just said about it being like drawn to the Mando, knowing that he's good. He doesn't know what or yeah. how. I, 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 said, I, think, I think the word he was, was allegiance. He knows the difference in the captivity and the vibe of that and, and like the bad people that have been hiding him and holding him and, tra- you know, versus the energy that he's getting and feeling safe from the Mandalorian. Yeah. So when the Mandalorian is in danger, I think my niece would, if someone was like hitting me or hurting me at three years old, she would run and say, stop, stop. Right. You know, she would, she would be affected by that. So the child is affected by the energy of it. And, and because this species is clearly quite force sensitive, that's just a, it's a natural reaction. Nope. I'm going to stop. I can stop that. 
Yeah. I, I don't think it has to be much deeper than that. Yeah, I, I can accept that. Well, speaking of natural instinct to protect, I was pretty bummed on the Mudhorn vibe with stealing the egg and killing this this big fluffy rhino who was clearly I, I agree, just trying to protect its unborn child. Jawas are jerks, man. I, I think it parallels what the Mandalorian is doing for the child. Like he's just trying to protect that child. Yeah. That Mudhorn was just protecting her children. So I, I agree with you, Adam. I'm saying this is a vegan I also. Yeah, I, I think it's a little sour. I think it's unfortunate from from a vegan protecting animal standpoint. I agree. I do agree with that. But I think that it also plays into showing us how savage this universe that we're watching is, that we're learning about is. Yeah, this whole thing is about that juxtaposition of this delicate little child in this cutthroat world. And, and how frivolous the Jawas were with the, with the egg. They're not washing their hands. They're not. Yeah, like it ended up really not meaning anything. It was like a bunch of kids to get the ice cream truck pulled up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you think about, think about how, how furiously the mother was protecting the egg. And then, I don't know, how flippantly the Jawas treated the egg. Yeah. That was pretty disheartening. When we get Favreau on the show, we'll ask him about right. it. All right, wrapping up certain point of view. Well, Nick, didn't you have one, a big one? Yeah, actually, my gripe was nothing to do with Mandalorian, but how it was received by, I'll put it politely, anti-sequel trolls or anti-Kathleen <laughs> Kennedy trolls. Yeah. Those people absolutely loved the Mandalorian and... It's because it is what they want it to be. So they got what they wanted, heavily male-led, dirty setting set in the original trilogy, and mm -hmm. they loved it. So they're yeah. like, see, all you had to do is do what we wanted, and it's a super <laughs> big success now, Kathleen Kennedy. So that's my right. gripe, is that the detractors of the sequel trilogy, this is what they actually want to see. And not that it was successful because they liked it, but it gave them these people the chance to be like, see Kathleen Kennedy, all you had to do was this. And it's right. super popular now. But at so the same time, still bummed me out. At the same time, still calling her incompetent, even though yeah, this exactly. gave them everything they wanted. But what was it that, that, that she had looked over or not addressed that they were really looking for? Was it the brutality or? Uh, it's more about original trilogy storytelling. People straight up can't get over the fact that, you know, the lead protagonist in the sequel trilogy is a woman, all this stuff. So this is just the opposite of all that. And they loved it and it was mm -hmm. a success. So it gave them fuel to just troll harder, basically. <laughs> I think the best words in your gripe are they and them, because yeah. I just, while you were talking, went to refresh my memory the audience score on Rotten Tomatoes for The Force Awakens and The Rise of Skywalker, it's a lot lower for The Last Jedi. That is what it is. But it's the same. It's exactly the same for The Force Awakens and The Rise of Skywalker. It's 86% uh -huh. positive <laughs> rating. So they and them wanted the old school, mm -hmm. you can't have a, a woman be the protagonist. That They are them. They don't even know the word yeah. protagonist. It's too generous. Exactly. They don't. <laughs> it's just such a small community of people that have such a loud voice and it's, yeah. it's infuriating. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. So that's my overall gripe. And you're right. It's a good gripe because they they worship this. Yeah. It made me like just be introspective because I felt annoyance before I knew what it was. And I was just like, it has nothing to do with the actual show. It's that it's somehow going to be spun by these people into like, see, it's a massive success. This did everything the sequel trilogy didn't. It's like, shut the hell up, you <laughs> loser. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking loser. <laughs>
thousand generations. It is the dark side. gosh. It's a Calicori. A Sith Wayfinder. Dark science. Cloning. Secrets only the Sith knew. All right. There's some cool stuff in this. I mean, this is Easter Egg Fest 2019. It is. So we're going to go down this quickly because this is a long one. One of the biggest ones, it's not so much an Easter egg, but it's just a, a, a cool fact. The very concept of this show is based on a series and some films from the samurai, you know, the Japanese kind of samurai Western genre called Lone Wolf and Cub, where a samurai has a baby that he has to protect. And it's the same kind of juxtaposition of vicious warlike kind of lifestyle and this delicate little baby. More samurai Japanese film influence on, on yeah. Star Wars. It's and that's awesome. the cool thing that Favreau said, instead of going back to study Lucas's work to get inspiration, he studied the stuff that inspired Lucas, which is where this came from. Ooh, that's cool. So I said this in another episode. It's like, you want to sound like Deftones, so instead of listening to Deftones, you, you listen to Bad Brains. So like Bad oh, Brains and Faith No More right. inspired an entire oh, generation. No more, for sure. uh, Mando uses his phase pulse blaster that you know he evaporates and Jawas with. He uses it on the sea monster. He uses like the electrocution setting, whatever it is. It's a reference to the animated sequence which introduced Boba Fett in the Star Wars Holiday Special, and the rifle itself actually comes from that. That's a super deep cut. I added this to the list like later on, but it works with this one too. Just no disintegrations. I mean, we, we've talked about this a little bit before, but the idea that Vader knew Boba Fett, you know, from other jobs, he mm-hmm. kind of was counting on him to be the one to actually bring Skywalker in. So he's like, no disintegrations. Well, of course we get to see a Mandalorian disintegrating <laughs> shit. <laughs> so I, I think that's a really cool that's little dope. Easter egg connected to the original trilogy. I don't know if they would have done it in the original if it would have had the same impact as how John Favreau envisioned it. It's so yeah. good. Also reference to the holiday special, right in the opening thing with Horatio Sands, he references Life Day, making Life Day canon. It was the, the Wookiee holiday that was introduced in the Star Wars holiday special, mm-hmm. which is you know yeah, the right. longest running joke. Now it's canon. There it is, Life Day. <laughs> I never thought the day would come where <laughs> they would legitimize that episode. <laughs> Lucas, I mean, he's like quoted a million times as saying like, no, I didn't write that. No, that's not me. I think in the gallery thing, isn't there a point where Favreau's like, that's from the holiday special and George Lucas literally is like, oh, I didn't write that. I don't know. (laughs) It's like, oh, it's great. Actually on film. (laughs) That's amazing. I love it. The armorer's helmet influenced by Grease's hoplite helmet. Did I say that? Yeah, it looks straight up like uh, Brad Pitt in Troy. (laughs) That is officially what influenced the design of that helmet. Pretty sick. Baby Yoda. This is pretty dope. So the child is a puppet. I had the exact opposite feeling as I did from Kuwil. I was so fully reeled in. I sent you that photo, Adam, uh, of me holding it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dude, it was like heavy and it felt real. Like even yeah. the skin felt real. Everything That's... about that puppet felt real. It's so it incredible. But in case it didn't look convincing, the crew shot takes without the puppet with the intention of creating CGI in post. But yeah. when Werner Herzog, <laughs> this is great, who played the client, found out, he went to the crew and said, you are cowards. If you take this out, leave it. And the puppet was left in. <laughs> I love that. He just straight put him on just on And you can't argue with, with Werner Herzog. No. Because he's one of, the, one of the most brilliant filmmakers to ever walk the face of the earth. He, he said that the scenes were heartbreakingly beautiful. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's great. This coming from a dude who is famous for saying he's never seen Star Wars. Yeah. We talked earlier about how Favreau has a history with Mandalorians in the Clone Wars. He played one of them. So he kind of said from the beginning, 
if I'm going to play anything, I want to play a Mandalorian. This is, I mean, I guess Boba Fett has been like his favorite character since day one. So I think, I hope that the idea that Django and Boba were not Mandalorians, but also never, you know, Boba never took his helmet off. So just some kind of connection, you know, like I, I, I hope he is able to work with story group to connect to Boba Fett somehow. I don't know. Yeah. Like they're in the same tribe. If they, the, like if Boba ended up becoming like an honorary Mandalorian, something, you know what I mean? Like right. there's so many ways he could go with it. And if, if you have to believe the inspiration for this whole entire project was Boba Fett, right? Like mm-hmm. how is he going to connect it? How is he going to draw inspiration from and, and go connect the whole story back to Boba Fett somehow? Yeah. I hope he does. Last thing, a little bit. The Trandoshans that he's fighting in episode two, same species as Bosk, the bounty hunter that we meet in The Empire Strikes Back in that original 45 intro. seconds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, along the same lines of the Trandoshan showing up, in the opening like bar scene, that kind of like squid face looking dude, that's a Quarren. That's, oh, yeah. Uh, we first see them in Return of the Jedi. And like that flute taxi dispatch alien, that's also, that mm-hmm. person's in A New Hope or that species in A New Hope. And he that's called the a flute Kubala. Up his nose. He ratted out the... He, yeah, uh, he's like a spy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. There's also a gonk droid that leads Mando into the client's office. <laughs> it says so gonk like nine bit. times in that yeah, scene. Yeah. Kind of a big one, unconfirmed theory, but it seems like it's just out in the open. Dr. Pershing has what everyone seems to think is a... Camino cloning insignia on his arm. For so sure. That's like yeah. a huge, huge theory about what the remnants of the Empire want Baby Yoda for is some sort of cloning or something like that. So, right, like the motivation for getting him back. Yeah. Unconfirmed, but there is some sort of insignia that looks like Camino cloning uh, on Dr. Cool. Pershing's uh, jacket. We could talk for a whole additional hour about what that means and, and theorize, oh. but. <laughs> yep. But we're not that podcast. <laughs> I don't think Favreau's going to let us down. All right. We've talked about so much stuff that we like and we love. Let's get official. Let's move on in. I love you. I know. I'm going to be able to keep this real short for you because like, just like, I'm not going to go favorite scene. So I'm just going to, when you ask me, I got one, I'm going to drop it and I'm out. Tell us what's your favorite. Even though it was already spoiled for me realizing the magnitude of what this experience is going to be for all of us. The ears and the finger touch will forever be one of my all-time favorite Star Wars moments in in my entire life, forever and ever and ever. Same, hands down for me. I knew there was a baby Yoda coming, and I figure we might all say this as our favorite scene. So I'm sorry to steal it from everyone, but I just... I mean, I don't even know if I need to go into like add a favorite quote. It was so moving and nostalgic and new all at the same time. It was just like, wow, this is going to be something so special. By the way, chapter two is amazing too, but it's just after only 30 minutes of television to see that moment and realize the ride that we're all about to go on for hopefully, you know, several seasons to come. The answers to questions you have, all those things summed up into this one little space bassinet as you call it adam that scene that reveal it's just it's always going to be one of my favorite star wars moments samir what do you got i think my favorite moment is when mando is sitting there by that lamp that's you know it's it's warm enough to almost look like firelight but it's not firelight it's he's mending his wound you know he's trying to work on that that wound that he has and 
the baby Yoda keeps on climbing out of its bassinet to help him. You know, it, it's, it's that weird, like, it might be because I have daddy issues or whatever, but like, you know, that, that feeling of like, you know, the child coming to like, he's like, I, I can help you, you know, and the father being like, you know, not really understanding why that kid's there and like grabs him, puts him back and he comes, and they, but then he comes back. And, Quit bothering me, kid. You know, it was this, it was this moment. It, it was that moment like in Jaws, you know, where they're at dinner or whatever and the son is, you know, mirroring the the dad and the way he's eating his dinner. Right, right. Yeah. It was it was it was, this, it was this piece, like it wasn't a big piece of the story, but it was this part that has made it so human, you know, yeah. and so relatable. I, I really connected with that. You're watching two characters, zero human faces, right? So you right. got a dude in a helmet, and you have a little green baby puppet, right? <laughs> but you're feeling all of this like human connection. Absolutely, yeah. That's brilliant filmmaking, dude. It's brilliant, Nick. Yeah. What about you? I think my, my favorite part, because there's like some really uh, funny kind of Taika Waititi humor in there, is the whole gunfight at the end of uh, chapter one, where he keeps saying that he wants to initiate self-destruct sequence. <laughs> yeah. It's really, it's so good. It's so good. Because it's like the delivery is very obviously like droidish and monotone, but it's almost the timing of when he says it that makes it funny. So I, I love that. God, it's so good. I can't wait to see more from Taika. He just has such a witty style. I can't wait to see his movie. I mean, Hell yeah. We went off the rails structure-wise, and we talked about so much stuff that we love. Let's get into the medal ceremony and hand out the winners from our Patreon poll. All right, favorite scenes. We gave six choices to the patrons since we have two episodes here. These are some... Pretty surprising results. The first nomination was meeting the client, meeting Werner Herzog. Second, meeting the armorer. Number three, IG-11 gunfight. Number four, the child reveal, the finger touch. Followed by the Jawa sandcrawler chase. And lastly, the child using the force. With 46% of the vote, the IG-11 gunfight is the fan favorite among our patrons. Holy shit. I think that's cool, man. Like, I would expect it to be the child reveal, but that was Rogue One level Star Wars adventure gunfight. Just, yeah. you know, badassery. So it also had like a Star Trek feel to me. You do you, patrons. Whatever you like, <laughs> vote for it. Second place, 26% was the child reveal and the finger touch. And then tied for third, Jawa, Sandcrawler Chase, and the Child Using the Force, 13% each. Zero votes for meeting the client or meeting the armorer. Emily's going to be mad. I'd be scared of her, so somebody's, she's going to whoop somebody's ass. <laughs> All right, favorite quotes. First, I should say, we blew this. I blew this. This is my fault. I put a quote in here that doesn't happen until chapter three. Because in my heart of hearts, It's like this the quote, show. It's the whole show. I put this is the way in here. It's not till chapter three. And it won. Son of a bitch. So I'll read them all here. So, so the second place winner is the real winner this week. Right. First, from Mando. I can bring you in warm. Or I can bring you in cold. That's was, that was, that was a really good quote. And right off the top, too. Heavy for Star Wars, too. You know, like, like dark. Yeah. Dead or alive. It's good. Very Western. Next. Kawil with I have spoken. Oh, I love it, man. Instant classic. The client says Bounty hunting is a complicated profession. 
Another one from Mando. I'm a Mandalorian. Weapons are part of my religion. And last from the client. It is good to restore the natural order of things after a period of such disarray. Man, can I just say that at first, the show being completely devoid of English accents threw me a little bit. And then once I heard a European accent, you know, German accent it, from It felt Herzog, like you were was, back home. Yes. It like, <laughs> there's yeah. just something about that. And his delivery, his tone, like his... Oh, dude. I, you know, because I grew up on his documentary film. I love his voice. I love his narration. To see him as an actor was like, it kind of threw me. But then like yeah. to hear his voice was like, it was comforting. Best in it's the so parsec. Weird. Yeah. He nailed it too, man. He's, yeah, he totally nailed it. He seems like this just fanatic imperial believer, you know? Yeah. But, just, but wise oh, so good. and genius in his evil ways, you know? Still, <laughs> yeah. like you can't help but respect him. Here's the thing, dude. I talk about how attracted I am to this Mandalorian Rogue One style of filmmaking in Star Wars. And... Let's go, you know, let's go sequel trilogy with Hux and some in the officers. They have more of that, the film version of Star Wars that's kind of more theatrical feeling, you know, like dropping a line in this, like, it's my turn for a line, you know, <laughs> and in, in Rogue One and now in Mandalorian, these characters are, I think, much more humanized. This felt like, oh yeah, this is an Imperial fanatic who is in hiding and has a scheme to get it all back or whatever his motivations are. But does that make sense? Like it just yeah, felt sure. more human. It felt more, more real. Like you're watching, not watching a fantasy film. You know, you're, it felt like you, you're just living in this world. Like it's a real place you could be. And I think his delivery of that character was very different from other Imperial officers and things than, than we've seen with maybe the exception of Tarkin. He's to me, even you go back and watch that, that dude's just an officer in the military. You know, he's not just like dropping lines in like, here's my comedy or here's my thing. That's because I feel like hooks, you know, some of those guys, they do that sometimes. They're caricatures in, in a way in, in the films. Yeah. In the yeah. films. So I, I, I don't know. I loved his portrayal of this Imperial character because I don't think we've seen a lot of Imperial guys like him. Yeah, I agree. So the unofficial winner that just crushed in this with 56% of the vote, this is the way I blew that. But <laughs> the official winner with a mere 18% of the vote is I have spoken. The best delivery of that of all the one in, in, in both episodes is when he goes, I don't know how to ride Blurg. I have spoken. Right. That's it. That's it. That's his answer. He's not, he doesn't say, I'll teach you or we'll, he's just like, yeah, but I told you, you have to, Yeah, you know what I mean? Like that's his vibe. So because oh, so the Mandalorians, you know, they wrote the Mythosaur. Yeah. So it's like, there's no reason you can't write yeah. a blurg. I really wish like just being baller enough to be like, I have spoken. I will not repeat myself. What I said that's so is good. That's exactly it, Nick. That's exactly what he meant in that moment. The, the finality like, of the statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will not repeat yeah. myself. Yeah. You have to ride one to go there. I wish I was. I mean, how many times <laughs> in my life do I want to just be like, do I have to say that again? Like, I, it was important. What I said was important. I have spoken. It's gangster <laughs> as fuck. Second place, unofficially second place or officially whatever we're calling it. I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold. No votes for bounty hunting is a complicated profession. Strange. That's interesting. Wrapping up, final thoughts. We all love this, clearly, right? We and Absolutely. most others all love this. 
Yeah. Because it's great. It's been a very rejuvenating experience for the entire Star Wars fandom. I mean, I think it's brought together prequel OT and sequel fans in a way that nothing else has done yet. Agreed. Let's do a little lightning round. Are you ready for that, Samir? Yes. A major weapons test is imminent. Test play 94. You may fire when ready. All right, we're going to give you an either-or question, a favorite question, and a would-you-rather question. Welcome to Test Bay 94, Samir, which you'll be stoked to know we pulled from a mid-90s PC Star Wars game. Love it. It, it was like an Imperial weapons testing thing in a video game that like is 30 years old. Deep cuts. And uh, so before we ask the either-or, I found this is, from what I found this... In Legends, it actually says something about how different kinds of best of, of Beskar metal can be put together to make different colors. If you look on Wikipedia, there's a Legends tab and a Canon tab for a lot of stuff. So it said that, and it didn't say anything about it in the Canon. But the armorer is wearing it, so it, it can't. She's wearing gold. She's not wearing some half-ass shit. Right. She's got to be wearing the real thing. So go ahead. So Adam, either go. or for you, gold or silver Beskar? Silver. All right. Sick. Keeping it OG. Favorite bounty hunter? Like all time. Boba Fett has to be just because that's what I grew up on. All right. Would you rather get to raise the child, but you have to drink raw mudhorn egg all three meals every day for the rest of your life? Or you get to be a Mandalorian, but you never collect pucks. You're only in charge of of foundling daycare for the rest of your career. Okay, easy. Wait, I would raise the child and drink raw <laughs> mudhorn egg. Yeah, yeah. yeah and this egg. is why. And that's why. Because I grew up on Rocky, where he would crack <laughs> yes. the eggs, yep. like all those raw eggs, put, it in, put them in there, and just yeah. fucking just throw it back. <laughs> I thought about that while I was pinning this. Would yes, I, I, it'd be awesome to raise the child who has the force and just witness that. And I'll drink, I'll, you know, I'll drink that all day and just do push-ups and planks all day and just get buff. <laughs> great. Damn, that's the quickest test by 94 ever. That was great, man. <laughs> well done. Anything else before we read a quote of the week and wrap this bitch up? Uh, I, have to say, I, I have to say that I'm grateful to be here in, in the presence of this greatness. All you dudes, I feel honored and, and humbled. Thank you. Dude, we were stoked to have you. Yeah. That we were, I guess we should ask, are, are you working on anything right now? Like you want to share with like music wise or production? Yeah, yeah. I have, I have, a, I have a, a project called Bell and the Dragon. I, I released an album uh, in January and then, and then the pandemic hit and all my tours got canceled. Best. Like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I'm not doing any of those festivals or, or, or any of those tours anymore. So cool. Uh, and, and now I'm doing a new project with my buddy, Don Tyler, who's a music director, a, a show called Yo!, I guess, like, I don't know. I actually, I actually haven't signed an NDA, but I should. I just, not much I could talk about it, but I know I'm going to get all you guys on there and we're going to do it because we're, we're revolutionizing the way that uh, music and sports and theater are be able to be enjoyed in a virtual setting. Cool. It's exciting. Sounds awesome. Samir was also nice enough to send me a vinyl of his. Have you enjoyed it? I just hooked up my turntable the other day. So I haven't yeah. played the vinyl itself, but I listened, you know, on Apple Music to the stuff, and it's I think, dope. I, I think you'll enjoy it. It's sort of the story of my journey out of evangelicalism. Nice. I want to hear that, and I'm a vinyl junkie, so let's connect and uh, you give yeah, me. Yeah, I'll send you mail. one. Absolutely. Yeah, right. Nick, I'll send you one too, man. Oh, yeah, if you yeah. guys want to like send me like your your email addresses or mailing addresses, or whatever, and like, cool. I can cool. send you some shit. 
Rad. So both of you guys say your home address is on the podcast right now. Go. <laughs> oh yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, let's wrap up with a quote. This is great. From Akira Kurosawa. As you may know, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, a filmmaker who heavily influenced Lucas and whose genre of origin heavily influenced this show. Akira Kurosawa said, it is quite enough if a human being has but one field where he or she is strong. If a human being were strong in every field, it wouldn't be nice for other people, would it? <laughs> I chose that quote because I felt like it was relevant to bounty hunting because they have one focus, one singular talent. Yeah. And to be a Mandalorian, I, I guess your bounty hunting has to be pure, you know? I like it. I feel that. Samir, where can we find you on social media? You can find me at Professor Bombay is my handle and at Bell and the Dragon is uh, my solo project. And, you know, always at Live Music. I check all the social stuff. If you send me a message, I'll reply. Dope. If you're looking for the podcast on social media, you can find us on Instagram at ThankTheMakerPod, on Twitter at ThankTheMaker1. My stuff is all at Adam the Skull. If you want to check me out reposting everything that gets posted on the <laughs> Thank the Maker accounts, you can also see that stuff at William Ryan Key. And I'm still at, even though I've been thinking about just not being Nick Bayside anymore. I'm still at Nick Bayside. <laughs> oh, dark! <laughs> All right. And on that bright note, may the force be with you. Alligator bit my hand off. Oh, my God. Yeah, tournament down in Florida. I hooked my ball in the rough down by the lake. Damned alligator just popped up. Cut me down in my prime. He got me. But I tore one of that bastard's eyes out, though. Look at it. <laughs> You're pretty sick, Chubbs. <laughs> <laughs>